All right, what you are watching right now is what, uh, what is basically a redo. I'm going to be teaching a lesson that I taught last night to our group here, and for one reason or another, uh, the microphone battery died, and there's no record of the sound of the lesson, and being that we're teaching a verse-by-verse-by-verse by verse by verse, uh, study through the book of John, I think it would be fitting to not to have a record of every verse and not have any lessons omitted. So I will be speaking to an empty room right now uh, for the benefit of those who may be watching online or, or following along on the internet or the website and that kind of thing. So that's what this is. So if you ever wanted to see a man talk to himself for 45 minutes or so, you're about to. <laughs> but uh, the last lesson in John that we did, we finished up chapter 2, and we saw Jesus going into the temple at Passover, and that's when he threw over the tables of the money changers, and he's causing a ruckus. He's talking about tearing down the temple, or you know, destroy this temple, and I'll build it again in three days, and, and he's just making a lot of headlines. And he's doing miracles all around town while he's doing this. But before we get going, I want to remind us of when we read the book of John, understanding where we are in God's progressive revelation and God's timeline of things. Remember, we are still in the Old Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are Old Testament in their material. We know that from Hebrews. Hebrews tells us you cannot have a New Testament without the death of the testator. So it's impossible for there to be a beginning of a New Testament before Christ dies, before he sheds his blood. Also, you'll notice I put the Old Testament starting with the law. And you say, well, no, mine says it starts at Genesis. No, the Old Testament was made with the house of Israel. And he made it with Moses at the giving of the law. That's when the Old Testament began. That's important to understand who the Old Testament was to. as It helps you understand who the New Testament's to. But Jesus is going around town performing supernatural acts. And our society, our Christian culture, has, has cheapened the word miracle so much, you know, my tire didn't go flat. It's a miracle from th those kinds of things. But these are actually real supernatural events. This is not smoke and mirrors. This is not magicians. This is not David Copperfield or Chris Angel doing some big poof and all of a sudden, wow, there's an elephant in the room that wasn't there before. Now, these are real miracles. This is Jesus Christ performing acts that break the laws of physics, that break the laws of biology. Uh, that's a miracle when you break these natural laws. And that's what, what Jesus is doing. And the miracles prove who he is. Remember when John the Baptist asked him, are you the one or should we look for another? Jesus didn't say, yep, I'm the one. He just took John's guys and said, watch what I'm going to do. And he just started doing all these miracles. The miracles prove his message. Um, so that's what we're talking about here. Um, and, you know, when you, when you think about a real miracle, I used this illustration last night. Um, I think about this girl that I went to school with. She was younger than me, but uh, she had cerebral palsy. And sweet girl, she had the, the sweet, beautiful smile on her face all the time. But the fact of the matter is she's been in that wheelchair her entire life. And what Jesus is doing is going up to people like her and saying, get up and walk. And they do. They've never walked a day in their life. They've been in the wheelchair with their you know, muscles not working their whole life. And... Instantly, supernaturally, they have strength. And not only do they have strength, they know how to walk. They've never walked before. They never practiced. But all of a sudden they walk. Now that's a miracle. That's, 
the kind of stuff that the Lord Jesus Christ was doing, not the kind of junk you see people like Benny Hinn or Ernest Angley claim to do. These are real miracles. But that's what happens there at the end of chapter 2, and the people are, they can't deny the miracles because there's real stuff happening, and he's making headlines, and he's getting people's attention, and nobody's saying, no, that's not a real miracle. They're not denying the miracles, as we'll see here in John 3, but um, the, the rulers, uh, one of the rulers, one of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, comes to pay a visit. Uh, Terry was here last week, Terry McLean, and he jokes it's the first episode of Nick at Night, uh, which I like that. But Nick, Nicodemus, comes to visit Jesus at night. And we pick up that here in John chapter 3 and verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. So, Nick comes and he, he says these, these things, but before we get into that, I want to remind you that one of Jesus' chief enemies on the planet when he was in his earthly ministry to the nation Israel in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not um, the filthy, rotten sinners that you would expect. They weren't the, the, the bad people that you would say, but they were the religious elites. They were the the pinnacle of religious excellence. They were the rulers. They were the people that folks looked to uh, for religious guidance. And they were his chief enemies, claiming to serve Jehovah God, opposing God manifest in the flesh. You don't get much more wrong than that. But that's what they were. And if I could just take an example and, and spiritualize it for a second, don't we do the same thing today? Don't we lionize religious elite people and the big names, you know. You think of guys that are on TV, the Joel Osteens, the John MacArthur's, the, the Pipers, you know, all the big names. We, we look at them like they're holier than we are, or they're closer to God, or God loves them more. And we don't study our Bibles, we just listen to what they say to us about their Bibles. Because, well, look at them. They've got this big church. They've got this big ministry. Well, they would know. They, they've got more degrees than a thermometer. How could I dare disagree with them? But we should never do that. The Bible tells us to study to show ourselves approved to God. Not take some other man's study and say, that must be right because of who he is. That's a terribly wrong thing to do. We should never lionize the religious elites and you know, I think of people that get so upset with me because everybody's got their favorites. You know, you can say a bad thing about this teacher over here, but I like this guy. And if I hit a button with that guy, well, I, he teaches wrong doctrine here. This is what I, it's. <gasps> oh no! You know, they look at me as if I've spoken against the Lord's anointed because I said John MacArthur was wrong over here when he said that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ was just normal blood that went into the ground. It wasn't. It was God's blood. And we see it in our Bible showing up at the mercy seat in heavenly places. It was God's blood spilt for you. Sorry, John MacArthur, you're wrong. He's got a much bigger ministry. He's got more money. But I'm going to stick with what the Bible says rather than what the elites say. And that's something we all need to do. Uh, Christ is our head. We don't serve man. We don't serve leaders or teachers. If you are a part of the body of Christ, Christ is your head. I used the illustration last night. I invited Terry McLean to come in here and speak. And I love Terry, and he's helped me 
more than any man I can think of in understanding my Bible and answering questions and helping me connect dots over the years. But if the day comes when he stands up and he teaches something wacky or wrong, sorry, I'm going to say, Brother Terry, you taught something that's wacky and wrong. I'm not going with you there. You're wrong and I'm going to say you're wrong. Because I don't serve him. I don't serve any man. I serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you put Christ in the balance with any man, Christ is going to win. Because he's my head. And these are his preserved words for me that I follow. So that's just an aside. But with uh, Nick at night. Now imagine Jesus is opposing the religious elites and they've got their order and everything and he's coming in outside and he's all these amazing things and he's causing a problem in the temple and ding dong the bigwig comes to visit at night he wants to talk to you he wants to talk to Jesus and the question is was was Nicodemus was he a dangerous maverick Pharisee uh, who was wanting to follow Jesus or was he a, a spy coming to you know act like he maybe Interested, but really just to spy out information, you can't know that. It's, it's not in the text. Uh, there is signs that Nicodemus may have become a believer at one point. You see Nicodemus talking about the, the great, have you ever seen a man speak like this before? And he's, the other Pharisees are getting mad at him. And then you see Nicodemus show up to help bury Christ after he's crucified. So there's a chance. You can't know for sure. Um, once again, it's not in the text. So... It's not important for us to know if God did not preserve it in his word for us. But I think it's pretty clear that, in, in, at least in John 3, 2, when this happened, that Nick didn't believe, he wasn't convinced that he was the Messiah. And because he says, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher sent from God. Now, contrast that with what John the Baptist said in the previous chapter of, of John here. And he says, this is the one, this is the Son of God, this is the Lamb of God. The Spirit descended on him from heaven like a dove. After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. He's making a deity claim about Christ. Christ was born after the John the Baptist. But John the Baptist says he was before me. That's a deity claim. So, you know, the Son of God versus, Rabbi, you're a teacher sent from God. You know, that's not the same level. So I I don't think that that Nicodemus really believed yet at the time. But, and we don't know when he says, you know, thou art a teacher come from God. We don't know if he's lying or telling the truth or or being disingenuous. You, You can't know that. But the fact remains that those real miracles were happening. And you couldn't deny them. People were getting healed. People who never walked before were walking. These things were happening, and they're causing an uproar and a ruckus with the Pharisees under their their Roman masters, and and people needed to find out what was going on. These guys had their power structure, these faithless Pharisees. And Jesus was a threat to the order and their power. Uh, But let's look at the the conversation here in in John 3.1. He says... uh, or three, two, rather. Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher sent from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Once again, you can't deny the miracle. You can't deny that Aunt Sally has had that condition for 40 years, and now Aunt Sally doesn't have that condition anymore. So, and then Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? 
Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Is that a relevant question if you're taking the words literally? But what's funny is Nick, like any good politician, he comes in with praise and, you know, we know you're a teacher sent from God and these wonderful miracles. And Jesus just starts right in and gets to the point, you know, as if he can read Nicodemus' thoughts. Oh, yeah, he can because he's God manifest in the flesh. He's the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He can read his thoughts and he demonstrates that over and over again. But the first thing he starts talking about this concept of being born again. He says if you're not born again, you can't see the kingdom. So to see this kingdom, you have to be born again. By the way, one of the things that I didn't realize in this redo is that the heat's been down in the building all day, so it's about a balmy 54 degrees in here right now. Uh, <laughs> but Jesus makes this very strong statement right out of the gate. If you're not born again, you're not going to see the kingdom. And Nick, we don't know if he's confused. He seems confused, but he, or whether he's just asking a disingenuous question. You know, how ridiculous are you? You can't be born again. That's ridiculous. We, we don't know that because we can't see nonverbals. In the, in the text. But he says unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? How's that going to work out? And what's funny is Nicodemus is taking Jesus' words literally as if Jesus could say exactly what he meant to say. That's so different from most teachers and preachers that come to books like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they can't handle the material, they can't handle the doctrines being spoken of because the doctrines disagree with their denomination that they start spinning. Well, Jesus didn't really mean to say this. What he meant to say was, you've all heard it before, I'm going to go with the fact that God, who created language and created everything, I think he can say what he means and mean what he says. I'm just That's just me. So when I read Jesus' words... I take them literally, unless he tells me not to take them literally. See more on that in John 6. Uh, but Nicodemus asked the question. I'm 5'8", 175 pounds. There's mom over there. How am I going to fit? How can I get back up in there and come back out? Seems relevant to ask if somebody's telling you, you need to be born again to see the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, unless you're not born again, you won't see it. And once again, this kingdom we're talking about is not heaven. The kingdom is what's prophesied all throughout Scripture. Christ said, I'm come to fulfill the law and the prophets in Matthew 5.17. Not to destroy, but to fulfill. And all through the law and the prophets, you see this promised kingdom on earth prophesied. That's the kingdom. It's not heaven. People still die in the kingdom. There is still sin in the kingdom. It's not heaven. That's important to understand. But Jesus says, unless, you, unless you're born again, you can't go until where I'm pointing you. We see Jesus point to this kingdom in Matthew 3, 2. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, 17. Jesus was preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the kingdom that we're talking about. And now he's saying, you've got to be born again. Born again. 
I talk all the time about how words get hijacked by culture, our culture. Um, people, a large enough group of people start using a word to mean one thing, and now it means something else. Born again is one of them. I grew up at the probably the height of the born again Christian movement. And um, a lot of times people don't understand what the term born again means from their Bible. They know what preachers say about it. They know what their friends say about it. They know what their grandma says about it. But they don't know what it means from the Bible. And we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight. And if you ask the average person, what does a born again Christian look like? You know, because you have people who are, well, I'm Christian because, you know, when I was a baby, my parents took me to church and they sprinkled water on me and they gave me a godparent and I go every other year on Christmas, so I guess I'm a Christian. That's what a lot of people say is Christian. But when you ask them what a born-again Christian is, if they've ever heard of any born-again Christians, they'll probably say somebody like Tim Tebow, because he thanks God for every touchdown and every win. Uh, and he you know, does that whole Tebow thing where he kneels down and prays, thank you, God, for that wonderful touchdown pass. You know, hallelujah. But that's what they think you know, a born-again Christian would be, somebody who is in church every time the doors are open, somebody who may have even passed out a track or knock on a door. That's what they say born-again is. Most people you would ask would define that. Um, what's interesting is the term born-again Christian appears exactly zero times in your Bible. Zero times. Not a born-again Christian does not exist in your Bible. There's a reason for that. Christ came not but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Israel can be born again because they were born the first time. Exodus 4.22, Moses said to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. They were born once, in that old covenant, and failed it, they needed to be reborn for their new covenant. They needed to be born again. Born again Christian is not in your Bible. Born again Israel most definitely is. Most people don't know that. They think born again Christian, that's got to be everywhere because I hear people talking about being born again all the time. Now, the born again movement really got traction right about the time I was born, in the late 70s. And what happened was Chuck Colson, this was one of Nixon's aides, he went to prison over the Watergate scandal. When he was in prison, he wrote a book called Born Again, talking about his experiences. And he allegedly went from the White House to the jailhouse to the Jesus House, allegedly. Um, but that title of that book became just an explosion of, we're born again Christians. And people who were were out witnessing or talking to people would say, are you a Christian? And all the Catholics would say, yes. And then they say, well, are you born again? And then that would springboard them into their, their witnessing opportunity. But that's where the term born again, I was raised to believe I was born again once I trusted the gospel, uh, that you're a born again Christian now and this is what born again is. But I never studied it out for myself to see what born again meant. I just listened to the pastor. Why wouldn't you listen to the pastor? Why, somebody standing behind a pulpit could never say anything wrong. That's what I thought. I was a kid, but let me quote from Colson's book. and He talks about, in this book, Born Again, his conversion experience. And he says, While I sat alone staring at the sea I love, 
words I had not been certain I had not been certain I could understand or say fell from my lips. Very poetic. Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I accept you. Please come into my life. I commit it to you. With these few words came a sureness of mind that matched the depth of feeling in my heart. Yada 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 on and on. Sounds great. Sounds pretty. Sounds poetic. You know how wonderful. But I didn't hear the gospel of the grace of God there. I didn't hear anything about death, burial, and resurrection. I didn't hear anything about Him trusting Christ's payments for His sins. You can let me show you how vanilla that statement is. Once again. I can't see the man's soul. I don't know his heart. I don't know whether he's saved or not. I'm just reading his words. And from his words, I get no indication that he has any understanding of what the gospel is. But these words that I had not been certain I could understand fell from my lips. Take out Lord Jesus and put in Allah. Allah, I believe in you. I accept you. Buddha, I believe in you. I accept you. I commit my life to you. They both work. Because... There's no gospel there. There's no death, burial, and resurrection of Buddha and Allah for your sins, but there is one for Christ. Put in the Jedi Force. Jedi Force, please come into my life. I accept you. That all works. But that's this is the guy who defined what born again means for our culture. That's what I'm saying. We need to go to our Bibles to define the terms. The Bible is its own best dictionary. I say that all the time, and it is. And what happens when you make the choice, I'm going to let the Bible be my final authority, more than the elites, more than the preachers, more than it, when I'm going to take this book, rightly divided, and let it be my authority, you'll be shocked at how the definitions change. Born again is one of them, but there's many. When you choose to say, I submit to these words as my final authority, you're going to end up so different than so many Christians are churchgoers that you know. But he says, the born again, Christ says, being born again is a prerequisite to get into that prophesied kingdom. You have to be born again. So if we are Israel under the law and our Messiah is in town and saying you must be born again, it would be good for us to define the term. What is born again? And one of the things you can see in the Beatitudes is what does born again look like? And Matthew 5, uh, I call it, and I've heard other people call it as well, the constitution of the kingdom where Jesus talks about what the people look like who enter in the kingdom. And you see things like, Blessed are they that are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they, they shall inherit the earth. Well, I want to be meek now, don't I? Um, but blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. We all like to say, yes, I hunger and thirst after righteousness. Really? Do you? We hunger and thirst after a lot of things. A lot of things. Righteousness is, if, if you're anything like me, and, you know, once again, I try to serve Christ and I try to do better every day, but when, when I look at my flesh and what it hungers and thirsts after, righteousness isn't on the list. Um, we try, we do our best, but... To, to have it be the default that I hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's not somebody like you or me. That's somebody very special with some kind of uh, enduing power. More on that in a minute. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall attain, obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's where the rubber hits the road, because we can dress up nice, we can come to church, we can say all the right things and do all the right things and smile at the right people and shake the right hands, but you know what? In your heart, if we could, if the NSA spies on everything, I'm sure they'll be able to spy on your heart soon, and your mind and your thoughts and your motives, when we get to take a look inside there, we're not going to find pure. You're not pure in heart if you're watching this. And if you think you're pure in heart as you're watching this, you're lying to yourself. But that's what these people are that are going to see the kingdom. So it's interesting. If you look over to another book, we're studying the book of John. And in John 1, if in our, one of our earlier lessons, we looked, and in the prologue to John 1, he's talking about how Christ came unto his own, and his own received him not. But in verse 12, he says, But as many as received him, as many as received Christ as their Messiah, once again, they knew nothing of the death, burial, and resurrection as a payment for their sins. They didn't know anything about Even after Christ died, and Mary says the tomb's empty, they go, oh no, what happened to Jesus' body? They didn't think he was resurrected. They were upset. They believed in the body snatchers. They didn't believe that he paid for their sins. It was yet still a mystery. Why? Because if the princes of this world had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The fact that Christ's blood was going to pay for your sins was kept secret. Nobody knew about it. But these people who received him as their Messiah, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. These people are born again. So once again, we're looking at our Bible to define this term, born again. They can have this new birth come from God. The same writer that wrote Gospel John wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in 1 John, people think they're born again and have, ne have never gone to their Bible to let their Bible define the terms. 1 John 2.27 But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. Anointing. You're anointed. What does the anointing do? And ye need not that any man teach you. Last night when I was here with the group, I said, What are all of you people doing here? If you're born again, if you have this anointing. Why am I standing up here teaching? There's no need for it if we're born again. We'll see that in a second here. Uh, and teaches you all of all things. All things. A-L-L. That means this anointing is teaching you everything you need to know. And it's truth that is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, you shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him. That when he shall appear, once again the appearance when he comes to the kingdom on earth, you shall have confidence and not be ashamed at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that every one that doeth righteousness is born of him. So when we're letting our Bible define the terms of what is born again, you do righteousness. What would be the opposite of that? If you're not doing righteousness, you're not born again. Two sides of the same coin. By the way, that's what 1 John is all about. The tests on how you can identify the liars and the frauds versus the true believers. Not 
us, but tribulation Israel. That's who the book of John was written to, or first John. But doing righteousness equals born again. Not doing righteousness equals you're not born again. So the question is, if you think you're born again, what do you do with that verse? Well, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm doing gooder than most. I'm not in prison. I don't break the laws. I pay my taxes. I'm a do-gooder. Yeah, yeah, that's me. Well, if you turn forward a page in 1 John, you get to 1 John chapter 3, you see more definition of what doing righteousness looks like for a born-again person. And this is a verse that's pretty stout and pretty simple. 1 John 3, 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. How many of us make it past breakfast, honestly, without committing a sin? On a good day, maybe, right? Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. That disqualifies everyone you know and everyone I know. Let's just keep piling these things on because what we're doing is we're letting the Bible define the terms for us. If you're born of God, you do not commit sin for his seed remaineth in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this, the children of God are manifest and the children of devil. This is how you tell who are the children of God and who are the liars following the devil's lie program. Did he commit a sin? He's not born of God. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth his brother. Last night what I said was, this is the, ap- the opposite of the Oprah effect. When you lay verses like this, you read them and you believe what you're, they're saying, and you let the Bible define the terms, suddenly you realize, there's no way I'm born again. So while Oprah runs around and says, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car, we look at ourselves, we look at our friends around us, you're not born again, you're not born again. I saw how you acted yesterday. You're not born again. If these verses are true, and the verses are true. The question is, is what everything we always knew about being born again true? Another one in 1 John, chapter 5, verse 18. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. There it is again. If you're born of God, I'm not going to find you running around town sinning. That's what being born again is. And you look at these verses that we've seen. What was the first one? No teachers. I don't understand. These verses have been in the Bible a long time. I don't understand how a pastor, who you would think had come across these verses at some point, can stand up and teach a crowd of people the Bible and tell them they were born again. It doesn't make any sense. If you're born again, you don't need a teacher. You have an anointing that teaches you all things. We read that in the verses. A guy I know said it's as, used to say it's as God, it's easy for me to say. It's as if God never wrote a Bible. And for a lot of people, that seems to be the case, or that they've never read it. Um, Let's add this other one here. Pure heart. Pure heart means you're disqualified. But 
why would anybody believe that they're born again with these verses? The answer is because we let people like Chuck Colson define the terms for us. We are not good students. We don't study ourselves. We don't read these verses and believe them, but we listen to what other people say about the Bible. We don't study the Bible for the most part anymore. We listen to other people's studies about the Bible, or we read books about the Bible, but we don't read and study the Bible. That's how you can get to that point. And we're talking here about Israel, prophetic Israel, getting into their kingdom, going from their Old Testament to their New Testament, and we see this list, and the question you ask is, how in the world... We like to think of ourselves as better than most, but you have to know that how in the world are these people, they failed under their covenant, how in the world can they ever follow that criteria? How can they ever be pure in heart and not need a teacher and don't commit sin and do righteousness? How is that possible? How is it possible for a son of Adam to hold to that standard? There's an answer for you. Back in Ezekiel, remember, Christ came to fulfill the law and the prophets. So anytime you see Jesus in his earthly ministry to Israel in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you see him teaching something or saying something, and what's he talking about? What's I don't understand this. You'll find your answer back in the law and the prophets. He's fulfilling all these things according to the prophetic program. So when you ask, ask the question, how in the world is it possible for somebody to do righteousness and not commit sin and not be a teacher and be pure in heart and love their brother as themselves? That's something I've never done a day in my life, and you haven't either. I mean, you may say it, I'm doing this because I'm loving you as myself, but when it comes down to the scales, number one wins. You know that. But it's in the prophetic program, back in Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 25, we see the prophecy. He says, Then will I sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Will I cleanse you a new heart? Also, will I give you a new heart? If it's coming from God, if God's giving it, He's not going to be giving you anything impure. There's a pure heart. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. Anointing? Having the spirit put in you? And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and, listen to this, cause you to walk in my statutes. Doing righteousness, not committing sin. I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Doing God's judgments is not committing sin. That's the anointed power that comes on New Testament Israel. That's what being born again looks like. So, we define what, from our Bibles here, what we've done is we've let the Bible be our guide and define the terms. And now, everybody you know is standing over here, and you're standing over here, but the Bible says you're in a different place because you've let God's Word take you there. Now you understand what this born-again looks like, and it's not your uncle who's in church all the time. It's a much higher standard if you're going to call yourself born again. So... And I've been teaching this over and over again and using Bible verses to support it, but Jesus wasn't talking to you and me in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He was talking to the nation Israel. And when you see this, it becomes very obvious when you look at your life, 
You may have trusted the gospel. God may have saved your soul. You heard that Christ paid the price for your sins. He died. He was buried. He rose again as complete and sufficient payment for your sins. And you trusted that. He saved you. He sealed you. You're headed for heavenly places. But you know you. And you know the things you struggle with and the old man and the flesh. And when you know that and you lay that on top of this and believe God's word, you know that there is no way you can call yourself born again. I was trying to teach a a Baptist friend about this a while back. And I wish I could have taken a snapshot of his face. Because when I said I would never call myself born again, I'm a new creature in Christ. He's made me a new creature, but I would never use the term born again. Why? It was as if I said I decided to follow the Koran. I mean, it was just... (gasps) Couldn't believe it. Because he was ignorant of God's words, quite honestly. And I learned a couple things. Not that I'm so smart, but I decided that I was going to let God and his words be true and every man a liar and every church tradition a liar and everything that everybody believes was going to be a lie and I was going to follow God's words wherever they took me. That's how I got so weird. Meanwhile, all that from John 3.3. I think it's safe to say you can't call yourself born again. But back to the conversation here with uh, Nick at night. And he says, how can I get back in mommy's tummy the second time? That's a good logistical question. I can't fit. Uh, What if mom's dead already? (laughs) That's a problem. And Jesus answers his question there. And once again, you can't know whether Nick was asking a flabbergasted argumentative question or if it was an honest question. What are you talking about? You weren't there, but we have the record and we go from that. And Jesus expounds and clarifies on what he said in verse 3. In verse 5, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he's talking about, and folks love, folks love their baptistries. And they love to make that, especially churches of Christ and denominations like that. You're born of water and the Spirit. You go down in the dunk tank and suddenly you meet God underwater and now you come up with the Spirit. That's not what he's talking about. Nick's talking about flesh, literal fleshly stuff. And the fact of the matter is when you're born, water breaks and you come out of water. And you see that again uh, in verse 6. Jesus clarifies this. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. So you've got to have a fleshly birth. You have to come into this world. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So Christ is pointing to this spirit. And he's saying to this Pharisee who's come into the room, your flesh is not going to cut it. Your flesh is not good enough. You need to have a spiritual rebirth. Um, And remember that the Pharisees, they viewed their their lineage and their birthright as sons of Abraham and teachers of the law. They they viewed that as a, as a guaranteed pass to be in right standing with God. Meanwhile, they did not have faith. And we know without faith, it's impossible to be pleasing to God. So, and you remember when John the Baptist, John the Baptist, he, he followed the Jesus book. He wasn't very good at uh, making friends and influencing people. Uh, but he's out there baptizing in Matthew 3 and 
the Pharisees want to come out and see what this guy out in the wilderness is doing. And John the Baptist doesn't say, hey, you great men of Israel. He says, hi, generation of vipers. Uh, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That was his first line to them when they came out. And he says, and think not to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, my father, my natural birthright. Uh, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. So the flesh birth is not enough. They needed that being born again. They needed that spirit, that anointing. Um, and once again, we just looked at Ezekiel. That prophecy is very clear. The new heart and the new spirit causing you to walk in God's statutes. That's what Jesus was talking about here. Now, that leads us into verses 7 and 8 here in John chapter 3. Um, verses 7 and 8. And boy, do the commentators wax along on this. Um, they just on and on. What's the spirit and the sound and the wind? And they, they write paragraph after paragraph of what this means. And you study to show yourself approved, but when I read this, I just... It looks very simple to me. But we'll get into that in a second. Um, first, I want to talk about the um, reason you should never go buy a Bible that don't got no these and thous in it. You need the these and the thous. They are important in the English language. And let me erase that. Good thing I took my eraser up with me. James Bible. Anytime you see a thee or a that, it is nominative singular. The speaker is talking to one person, thee and that. Marvel not that I say unto thee, you one guy watching this. Anytime you see the words And you, it's plural. It's talking to more than one person. It's talking to a group of people. Thee and thou equals one guy. Ye and you equals more than one, a group. Now, with that knowledge, let's read what Jesus says to Nicodemus. Remember, Jesus is coming to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he says in verse 7, Marvel not that I say unto thee, you, Nick, at night. One God, marvel not that I say to you, Nick. Look at the next word. Ye must be born again. You all, all y'all, as the kids like to say. Marvel not that I say unto thee, Nicodemus, Pharisee of the Jews, that ye, the nation of Israel, need to be born again. One guy, a whole group of guys. That's what he's saying there. You get that only in your King James Bible. B and E only in the KJV. We. But he says, back to the verse here. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, 
and thou hearest the sound thereof, but can, canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. Now, once again, you read the commentators on this verse, and it just goes on and on and on forever. But when I read it, the thou in the verse kind of helps me. You must be born. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou, Nicodemus, you, Pharisee, who's confused when I'm talking about being born again, the spiritual rebirth, you, Nicodemus, you don't understand. You hear the sound, but you can't tell whether it's coming or going. You don't know what's going on. Because when you lay on the other... Think about it this way. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Is everyone that is born of the Spirit, well, I, I hear the sound, but I don't know whether I'm coming or going. That won't work. But what will work is with the thou. Nicodemus, you don't understand. You, one guy, don't get it. That's, what, that's how I see it. And Nick can't recognize what this is about because he's still thinking about coming down Mommy's birth canal again. He's, he's got such a flesh orientation, he's not, he's not seeing what's going on here. And you see that here in the next verse where, where Christ upbraids him in verse 9. And Nicodemus said unto, answered and said unto him, How can these things be? And Christ says, Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? How'd you get put in charge, Nick? You're a master in Israel and you don't know these things? Remember, Christ came to fulfill the law and the prophets. This stuff was not a secret. It was not a mystery. It had been written down for thousands of years. How are you a master of these things and you've never read Ezekiel? How have you a master of these things and you've never read Jeremiah? That's what we're going to see here. He's, he should know, if you're a master of Israel, about these prophecies. And I talk about the mystery of Christ all the time. I talk about preaching Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery. But none of that was going on yet. The mystery wasn't revealed until Christ revealed it to the Apostle Paul. These are still prophetic times that we find in the book of John with Christ on the earth walking around. And this stuff was written down. And for Nicodemus to have not even an inkling of what was going on begs the question that Jesus asked. Are you a master of Israel and you don't know these things? The New Testament was not a mystery. Everybody you know thinks that they're a New Testament Christian. Once again, another term that's not in your Bible. Uh, the New Testament was not a mystery. It was prophesied. And it was prophesied... Let's just read the verse. We already looked at Ezekiel 36. I mentioned Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, 31. 31 squared. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with who? The Baptist? The Methodist? No. Who's this new covenant going to be with? The house of Israel. I said earlier, the same people that got the old covenant get the new covenant. It's important to understand. A new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. Although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord, but this, verse 33, this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. We read in Ezekiel about them having 
to their statutes written on their hearts. And they, here it is again, and I will write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And all the preachers get fired. Glory. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know the Lord. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. So, in other words, Nicodemus, master of Israel, how are you a master when you don't know these things? That's the question, and that's what's going on here in the passage with Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And that's what you get from letting your Bible define the terms for you. You get a completely different understanding than the commentators and the preachers and your friends and your relatives because you've chosen to do something they haven't done. You've chosen to let God be true and every man a liar. And it's not going to win you friends. But at the end of the day, I serve the Lord Jesus Christ and he is my head and I should be about pleasing him and being a good steward of what he's giving me. And sorry, sorry, friends, I'm sorry, family, I'm sorry, preachers. I can't go with you there because I'm different now because I've chosen to let the Bible dictate and define terms and let the Bible tell me how I should divide it rightly. And you can do that. And, you know, a lot of people have this complex about them that they they can't study or they can't understand these things. And when, when I lay out charts like this, you know, their, their mind just goes, because they've quit before they've already started. They haven't, they're convinced, as was I. When I quit going to church as a kid, I was convinced that there was no way you'll ever understand this without three or four PhDs and some THDs. I was convinced. I'll never know. So why try? But you can't. If you choose to let these words be true and let the words change you rather than you changing the words to fit your whatever doctrine you like, you can know these things. And you don't need a Ph.D. and you don't need a Ph.D. So that, with the first ten verses of uh, John chapter 3, concluded the study last night and this redo.